when when I was a kid, and they they gave us black and white pictures uh, in school to to color, uh, it it took me a while to get the hang of of coloring inside the lines. Now, that may not surprise some of you. Um, my, my problem was that I wanted to, to color too quickly and would just run right past the edges of the picture. And the thing is that sometimes theologians in the church work a little bit like that too. Sometimes those in ministry are very eager about something maybe a particular practical application or a specific cause, or, or maybe we become overzealous uh, for some agenda that we've taken on. And, and they forget to pay attention where the, the theological lines are. Sometimes, you know, that results in, in something small, crossing the line just a little by accident. But other times... It might result in being uh, totally unaware or, in fact, totally ignoring on purpose that the lines exist at all. Now, that second problem, totally ignoring the lines altogether, happened in the early church. One incident being here in the church of Galatia with some troublemakers who were concerned that Christians remain faithful to the full Mosaic law. Now, the thing is, right, that, that, that's a really foreign thing to us, but maybe we can have some sympathy for this issue if we remember that God's people were keenly aware that disobedience to the covenant triggers curses, right? Israel had already gone into exile under, under Babylon, right? And then under Persia, and they'd been sent back, but even after they returned to the land, they remained in this in-between condition in subjection to the Romans. Right? So that had happened because of their ongoing unfaithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant. In that light, we can probably understand why even some early Christians from a, from a Jewish background were concerned about things like circumcision. It's not merely that they wanted to distort the truth, but they feared, were afraid that the Gentile approach to practicing the Christian faith put God's people in danger. They, they had not then grasped that Christ's work had freed his people from the curse of the law, overturning this present evil age. And their mistake was so thorough, though, on this issue that they altered the gospel itself. Now, the thing is, that alerts us right from the outset to a connection to, to the way that we practice our faith. The erroneous teachers in Galatia were coloring outside the lines because they had fears that God's people were breaking the rules. So they imposed more rules or reasserted the rules they shouldn't have at least, and said salvation was at stake in the people's faithfulness. Now, we can perhaps find some resonance with that. It's, it's very easy for us today as well to focus on a fear 
that we have that God's people are not acting faithfully in some specific way. It's not uncommon, is it, to see believers put the entire church's faithfulness or, or even the gospel itself at stake in some matter that is especially close to their heart. You know, maybe it's a social cause, maybe it's a, a principle of application, something like that. And, and still, we see that when some did that in Galatia, they ended up compromising the gospel itself. And so were false brothers. That gives us a, a moment of caution, I think. doesn't mean we don't think about these things. It means that we are cautious about making the gospel itself at stake. How then do we, though, color inside the, the theological lines? What, what help can we have to do well in thinking within the biblical boundaries of the Christian faith? Paul helps us to answer that question, those questions, as he continues the story of his apostolic task. So the main point today is that explaining our beliefs and practices well requires the church to work together. Explaining our beliefs and practices well requires the church to work together. We're going to think about this in three points. The story continues, the story confirms, and the story comforts. So the story, first, the story continues. Right, we saw last week when we were uh, in an earlier portion of Paul's narrative of his ministry that Paul told this account of his conversion, of his call, and his ongoing apostolic work to prove the point. He's telling the story, prove the point that the gospel came to him by divine revelation. He opened this letter with a greeting that included an affirmation that he was an apostle because of a divine appointment rather than a human one. He rebuked the Galatians for turning so quickly from the gospel that he had announced, which culminated, that rebuke culminated in pronouncing a curse upon anyone, hypothetically including himself, who would preach any other message than that he and Barnabas had previously announced to them. Now in verse 10, Paul stated that this is, this is where that story begins, right? And, and we need to remind ourselves of that initial point. In verse 10, Paul stated the reason he was so intense about this issue was that he aimed to please God rather than man. And in verse 11, he followed that up explaining that he strived to please God rather than man because the gospel is a divinely revealed message, not a humanly invented one. And to prove, to prove that the gospel is divine revelation, he recounted the story of his apostleship in 112 to, to 214, roughly. That, that brings us to the, would bring us to the, the point where he's writing that letter. As we considered last time in one, uh, 10 to verse 24, only divine revelation explains why Paul made such a, a drastic shift uh, from violent persecution against the church 
to being an ardent apostle for the, for the gospel. Only divine revelation explains how he labored for years for the gospel that he received. And then the Jerusalem apostles, whom he'd never met, understood the gospel in the same way. In Galatians 2, 2 1 to 10, Paul continued his story with a point. Right now, now focusing, uh, so this section focuses at length on his second trip to Jerusalem, which, which still further proves, right, we, keeping in mind why is this story in the Bible, it still further proves how his gospel was divinely revealed and received. The gospel was received by the whole church. So the, the summary overview of these events in, in verse 1. You know that 14 years after his conversion, Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem again, this time with a Greek convert, Titus. This, this trip took place to make sure that Jerusalem Christians would have care during a, a coming famine, which is why Paul noted in verse 10 that the very reason he came to Jerusalem was to remember the poor. Now, here's the thing. Titus's presence in this story is not a throwaway detail. It seems passing, and we move quickly past it. It's a focal point. Right? As Acts 11, 19-30 recounts, Paul and Barnabas were ministering in Antioch when a guy named Agabus received a prophecy about a coming famine, which prompted them to go to Jerusalem. And so, like like the book of Acts, Paul noted in verse 2 that he went to Jerusalem because of a revelation, Agabus's prophecy. Now further, though, although Acts did not record it precisely because it was a private rather than a public meeting, during this trip, Paul said in verse 2 that he met privately with James, Peter, and John, the pillars of the Jerusalem church. Now, that, that meeting, that meeting is what makes Titus's presence in verses uh, 2 to 5 key. Right? Titus came. Here's, here's the thing going on. Titus came as the practical confirmation of Paul's gospel message. How so? He's a test case. In, in what sense? Right? It was, it was easy for everyone to agree in principle. It was easy to agree in principle as a hypothetical thing that circumcision was not required for salvation. But Titus, the Greek, brings teeth to that principle agreement. Titus was a Greek, so he was uncircumcised. That's the issue. Paul was with James, Peter, and John, the pillars of the Jerusalem Presbytery, precisely to confirm yet again that everyone was still on the same page about the gospel and its implications. As in verses 4 and 5, even when false brothers interfered in the meeting, and, and Paul, and, and we seem to gather that all the apostles, Paul and the other apostles, we did not budge even for a moment to impose the Mosaic law as a condition of salvation because that would compromise the gospel. 
Okay, and so as the story continues, story continues, it further proves that Paul received the gospel by revelation and that it was commonly received by the whole church, including the Jerusalem and Gentile presbyteries. Right? Proves two things. Gospel is revealed by God and that the church is united in understanding the gospel. Now, we come to our second point. The story confirms. The, the, what we've done so far is trace the story of Paul's second trip to Jerusalem uh, in order to highlight the central feature that, that Titus was not circumcised when Paul outlined the gospel in Jerusalem and presented Titus before the other apostles. We, we have already leaned toward the significance of that story, but, but this point makes explicit the payoff of Paul's account of his second trip to Jerusalem. And the payoff is that the story in Galatians 2, 1 to 10 confirms two points. Confirms two points. First, the story confirms yet again that the gospel was divinely revealed to Paul. The first major point of the whole story, starting back in chapter 1, verse 10, is that God revealed this message to Paul, who remained, and then this is where it gets more specific, who remained a faithful teacher. And as we're going to see next time we're in this book, even more faithful than some of the other apostles as a teacher of that message. Now, how does, how does this section, how does this section prove that? Well, this second trip confirms the gospel was revealed because those apostles in Jerusalem, in their, in their independent but not superior authority alongside Paul, still and again, still and again, approved the same message that Paul had been preaching for 14 years now. Because these apostles had not taught Paul, and because Paul did not need their approval, but still Paul and the Jerusalem apostles nonetheless agreed about the gospel, it shows it was divinely revealed. And, and it was delivered to those who held this office. So, Paul's story confirms the gospel was revealed. That's, it, that's his major emphasis throughout. But second, second, this story also confirms the unity of the church concerning the gospel, both in its outreach to the Jews and to Gentiles. Unity of the church concerning gospel, both in its outreach to Jews and Gentiles. Clearly, clearly the apostles in Jerusalem were entrusted with taking the gospel, the, the one singular gospel, to the circumcised. Those apostles supported and stood together with Paul in his understanding of the gospel and how salvation is not dependent upon any works that we might do, including circumcision. Their support is clear in this story, this part of the story. How, how do we see the church's unity in the story? Well, primarily, right, there, there are ministers here focused on uh, reaching very different 
groups of people, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jew and the Gentile. And that comes with very different sets of, of needs and concerns. And yet, yet they still understand the faith, the gospel in the same way. The church is unified. Now, as they consider the word of God, especially in light of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, they join together to confess the meaning of Scripture as salvation has gone to Jew and Gentile alike apart from works. They join together to confess that that is what Scripture means. Salvation goes to all apart from our works because Jesus. Secondarily, however, the church's unity is also clear in how Paul and the Jerusalem apostles mutually recognize one another's authority. You see that there's not competition. There's not edges. I mean, there's obviously some awkwardness about this issue, but that's because someone outside, or at least erroneous teachers in the church, had tried to create an issue. And Paul's putting that to rest. This is clear that they uh, reciprocally affirm one another. So clearly, clearly Paul was making the point throughout the story that his apostolic authority was not subject to or dependent upon the authority of the guys in Jerusalem. I don't need them to give me their approval. Yet, at the same time, right, he, he still recognized that they do have authority. And because of that, he conferred with them to make sure that they're all on the same page together. So on, on the other hand, so Paul recognized their authority. On the other hand, the Jerusalem apostles affirm Paul's authority, clearly in verses 6 to 10. Paul happily sees uh, them as the pillars of Jerusalem. E- even, even though that preeminence there in that place meant nothing for his ministry other places. Still, because they say, so, so Paul gives us two reasons that they affirmed him. They're kind of drawn out, but we can highlight them because they uh, they saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel, verse 7, reason 1, they saw that. And because, reason 2, they perceived the grace that was given to him, verse 9, because of those two things, James, Peter, and John gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. The recognition of, of mutual authority in gospel ministry. And so the, the story confirms... The story confirms their unity because they added nothing. The Jerusalem apostles added nothing to Paul's gospel or his ministry. Titus wasn't circumcised, and they stood together on that. Paul was right, and they agreed about it. And even their exhortation to remember the poor, which could kind of seem like they're saying, and, and by the way, Paul, add this, add this to your ministry. He says, that was the whole reason I came to Jerusalem. We're together in this. They, uh, yeah, the unity of the church 
is clear in these things. They didn't add anything to Paul. But so we come to our final point. That the story comforts. The story comforts. We've seen the, the major contours of Paul's account so far and what significant it had, significance it had for the church in, in Paul's day. But what can we take away from it? Right? And, and what I want to present to you is that what we should take away from this section is, is that we should find comfort from this story in at least three ways, but I'm going to present three ways. So first, the story comforts us because it shows us that God has ordered his church in such a way that none of us are are subject to the dictates of rogue individuals who may insist on their way. Right? God, has, God has established the structure of the church to be so that nobody can take control of it on their own. So we come back to coloring inside the lines, right? The properly working church is confessional, which means, right, what do we mean by that? The leaders of the church work together in equal authority to make sure that we are expressing things correctly. The leaders of the church work in equal authority to make sure we express beliefs and practices correctly. That's the heart and soul, really, in a sense of, of being confessional. And Paul did that with the Jerusalem elders. And we do that with elders in this congregation and in, in the free church. Now, because we today do not get new inspired revelation, well, what do we do? We write down what we understand the Bible to teach so that our understanding of faith and practice is, is publicly stated and summarized so that, right? Here's the purpose. We're not, we're not just trying to make a list of, of stuff so that no individual can use, or even a small group like happened in Galatia can usurp the church's doctrine like the false brothers in Galatia tried to do. If someone tries to push us or any free church congregation with push into, into our midst with distorted truth, well, we point to the Westminster Confession and to the catechisms and indicate what you're saying is at variance with how the church communally, commonly understands the Bible to teach. This is, this is what we as a whole see the Bible to say, and you are on your own at variance with the received word of God. So no one person is in charge and no one person determines what is true. Confessionalism prevents improper use of authority. A big deal in the church today, isn't it? We hear lots and lots of scandals. We don't need to name names because it's a widespread issue. Authority abuse, pastoral impropriety. Confessionalism prevents 
overstepping those, at least helps. So I'm not saying it's the silver bullet, but it helps to prevent improper use of authority and prevent improper teaching because no one person can be in charge. So it provides us comfort. The story in showing us confessionalism provides us comfort in showing us that we should have lines within which we all must color as we interpret and apply the Scripture. And and being confessional helps us clearly mark those lines. And then we get to happily color inside them. Second, second, this story comforts us because it takes the pressure off of, of individuals to be the doctrinal and practical police. Right? We, understandably, understandably, we all have our preferences for the way that things are done, and we all have our particular concerns and things that are close to our heart, and, and that's not, that's not a point of, uh, of critique. That's, it's good that we care about things. Right? But the way that Paul worked together with the other apostles helps us to see that our thinking needs to be clarified and refined on issues of, of doctrine and practice as the church, right? Not, not by ourselves. We find comfort in that. Why? You know, that, that's what we're trying to draw from this is comfort. And this is comforting because we can relax as we work within the church to determine necessary teaching and practice. We, we, we may feel uneasy sometimes with, with particular execution of, of church practice or something like that, and, you know, a particular thing. Um, and there, there's a very simple question in light of what we've considered so far that we can ask to get started in what we, what we do. Whatever issue I'm thinking about, do the Reformed Confessions address it? Well, if they, if, if, do they confess that, that the scripture teaches X on this topic? If they don't, if they, well, if they do, we have our answer. This is what needs to be held. If they don't, well, the reason is because there is not a commonly held understanding of what the scripture necessarily told us to confess as necessary. Right. So, so it shows us that there's not the, the consensus, the commonality of agreed understanding of the Bible's implications if we've not confessed about it. And it takes the pressure off. We don't have to make this the issue. What, what's a new topic? Right? Our confession is 400 years old. A few things have happened uh, in the last 400 years. What if it's a new issue after our documents were written? Well, if we have not, as the church, seen a topic to warrant an updated common statement uh, as an explanation or, or a supplement, explanation of or a supplement to the confessions, well, then it means that the church hasn't holistically taken a view on the matter or, or that the position, either the position is already there somehow, and it just needs to, like, look, there it is. We have a 
chapter on marriage in the Westminster Confession. We don't need something new in our day and age. We may need to elaborate, but we don't need a new principle. Right? So we, we either have what we need or, or the church has not taken a common holistic view on the matter as of yet. And we find comfort, right? We find comfort in that because it means we don't have to fix the church on our own. That's a big job. And we don't have to take it on by ourselves. The lines are there to to help us color in the right way. And we find comfort when we learn to color within the lines. Finally, so we've, we've seen two points of, of comfort already. Being confessional is good, and we don't, we don't have to fix the church on our own. And finally, we find comfort in this because it shows us Christ. And we actually see Christ here in two ways. First, we see Christ in his protection of the church. We here uh, always rightly focus on Christ's work in his office as our priest, right? By which, by the, the work he did as our priest, we have the forgiveness of sins. And we rightly come to that each week. But Christ also has the office of king, by which, as, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism 26 tells us, he subdues us to himself, brings us to faith. And then and then he also rules and defends us and restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. Paul's story shows us Christ's rule and defense of the church as even when individuals within the church err disastrously, Christ keeps his church in the truth. And so, so we find comfort uh, as we see that Christ leads, protects his church. And second, we as always see Christ in the forgiveness of sin. We know that our works can never measure up They can never earn our favor with God, and the apostles clearly saw that too. We will not impose a work as the condition of salvation. We know personally, right, we know that our personal failure to color within the lines is not limited merely or even primarily to the doctrinal explanation. We each have scrawled in bold print across the whole page of God's law with no mind whatsoever to where the lines are and have fractured what he would call us to do. We have totally abandoned the lines that show us right and wrong and have quickly run across them. We come short in all areas of life and have rebelled against our God. But Jesus, God's eternal Son, who came as our Savior, 
has perfectly covered in all the lines. Not, not just superficially, but added shade, perfect shading and detail to every aspect of his perfect record of righteousness. And he died in our place to take the penalty for our sin for every time we have or will run across those lines, however eagerly that may happen. For those of you who trust in Jesus, know, know, find comfort in the fact that his doing and dying has provided all that you need to be right with your God. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that we are part of the church and that to be in the church means to be the people of God under our King, the King Jesus, who reigns over us, who, who subdues us by bringing us to faith, who rules and defends us, keeps us in the truth as individuals and who, who have true faith and as the church as a whole, and you protect us. You conquer all of your and our enemies. We are thankful to be the people who belong to such a rich, gracious, and mighty king. And we pray that here, as we consider this text, we would be encouraged in how good you have been to your church and how you brought clarity to the gospel, you brought unity to the church, and you have kept us on the right track, not only in these early days, but for 2,000 years. And you will do so until Jesus returns. We find great confidence and hope in that. And we pray that you would use that to encourage us throughout the week, equip us to live for you, and to take seriously what it means to be part of the church. We pray all of these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.